Is that, was that Charlene or Dean? Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is November, November 2nd, 2016, and we are um, coming to the end of the calendar year with excitement. Uh, you might have seen in the, the rolling uh, blurbs that um, we have two more days for completion of fundraising for the, the 2016 Chad Hero. And the teams, uh, the Chad-related teams fighting it out for the top spot are, I think, $37 apart between Champions Against Child Abuse and the Molly's Place Heroes. So, so if anyone wants to tip the scales in either direction, you still have two days to go online and contribute to those teams and get us uh, over the 800,000 mark totally, which will be um, <clears throat> exciting. Just came from a, a, a section chief council meeting where we're talking about change management. There's certainly a lot of change in the air, so I want to make sure that people have on their calendars the evening of November 30th. We will have our fall slash winter all Chad meeting uh, here or in Auditorium G, probably 5 or 5.30. We'll send out an announcement so um, we can update all interested parties about uh, much as, as much as we can update about what's been going on. Ho hopefully some of the faculty attended the medical staff meeting last night with Drs. Merrins and Dan Jansen and Steve LeBlanc. So. Um, much going on, much of which is good, not the least of which is uh, given that um, Dr. O'Day is presenting today and I think many of his colleagues are in the room, even though he isn't in the room, I, I don't want to wait much longer. This news has been out and, and I've been touting it in our intern candidate uh, breakfasts. Dr. Little, our um, Emeritus Chair of Pediatrics and Emeritus Chair of the Grand Rounds Committee and Emeritus uh, all, all everything who's traveling so much that we hardly see him now in the second row there was uh, received quite a quite a prestigious honor last weekend I think at the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics NCE from the section on perinatology uh, you received the Virginia APGAR award for lifetime achievement in perinatology so <clears throat> probably no one more deserving and hopefully when you see him back here you'll um, give him a congratulations. But um, so it is a, a, a neonatology focused day, although we will have, what's the date for the fest shift? What's when's the? Okay, if we're coming up soon, so next week, so we have exciting things coming up. Next week, um, next week we have a, a, an exciting day. We're going to have um, Maya Rutman here presenting Grand Rounds, but, but I'm, I'm going to be very comfortable, and I'm going to encourage our primary care colleagues especially to consider attending Dr. George Tebolt's talk, Interprofessional Grand Rounds, which is about in, in enhancing the role of nursing in primary care. So. I, I will be understanding if we don't see our nursing colleagues or some of our primary care colleagues in the room because of that. Um, that'll be an auditorium G, and George George Tebow is the president of the Macy Foundation and quite an impressive uh, individual. December seventh, we will have an opportunity to once again honor George and and Bill Edwards. We will have a uh, special grand rounds, but also um, what's sometimes called a fest shrift. So it's a, a, a celebration of an academic career, a celebration of two academic careers, as we never officially feeded George on his retirement in that he will, of course, never retire. Um, and we will mark, um, we'll mark the conclusion of Bill's active clinical career with a, with a grand rounds, but also an all-day symposium of, of leading neonatologists and perinatologists. So that's in a month. 
Um, and um, it was such a busy agenda that we couldn't fit Carolyn into that schedule. Uh, and Carolyn's going to talk also a little bit more on the educational front as well. So Carolyn O'Day is is uh, our, our newest neonatologist in the section of, of perinatal medicine, a native of the District of Columbia. She received her uh, undergraduate degree from Williams College in Williamstown, Mass., and her medical degree at the Pennsylvania State University in Hershey. Subsequently completed um, the majority of her pediatric clinical training at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, where she was also chief resident. And um, we were fortunate to recruit her and her family to the Upper Valley after fellowship in neonatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, th thanks to her husband's interest in, interest in Dartmouth football. Um, and he came and helped win an Ivy League title to boot. But, uh, uh, that's right. That's right. She came. She came. She came. That's right. Well, you both had to find things in the Upper Valley, which is the challenge. But uh, Carolyn, I think, um, for two years between college and medical school, um, shared a common trajectory, taught some high school, and um, developed, uh, I think, an abiding interest in education. And shortly after arriving here, became the first. Um, the first uh, recipient of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Aligning Quality with a Simulation Education um, um, Award and has been doing some work here that she's going to share today. So, Carolyn, welcome. So, good morning. Thank you so much for having me uh, today to talk. When Sholene and Kathy invited me, I said, well, what would you like me to talk about? And they said, talk about what you love. So I think as most of you know by this point, what I really love is NRP and simulation, um, as well as medical education. So this is a little bit of a talk in three parts, and hopefully you'll get the theme as we move through it. Um, I'm going to start with a review, uh, and I should say I have nothing to disclose. Um, I'm going to start with a review of some of the more recent updates in the NRP guidelines, and I'm going to try to focus on really the things that uh, our primary care docs may be dealing with at a resuscitation in a, in a community hospital, um, the nuances of the further resuscitation that we may be doing uh, more heavily from a neonatology perspective, I'm going to gloss over a little bit. We'll move into talking about some of the current challenges in procedural education as well as some specific experiential education for our residents and our fellow trainees, um, as well as associate provider uh, trainees and orientees. And then talk about the use of simulation, um, not just in education, but I'm really going to make a plug for using simulation in research and how it can help us attack those challenges in graduate medical education and talk about the opportunities that we have here at Dartmouth within simulation and simulation research. Um, my fellowship research project was a simulation project, and so it was sort of one of these areas that I fell into, but now I've really developed a passion for it. So I'll, I'll talk about those resources towards the end. <coughs> so starting with neonatal resuscitation. Uh, these are guidelines that are reviewed every five years, and it just happens it's on the zeros and the fives. Um, at the international consensus on cardiopulmonary resuscitation and emergency cardiovascular care, science with treatment rec recommendations meeting. So that's a mouthful. Um, but this group uh, really goes uh, carefully in depth in thinking about how and why we are doing the resuscitation and the resuscitation algorithm uh, and really reviews the evidence each time, which is why these new updates um, sort of get tweaked every five years. It's focused on newly born infants, transition from intrauterine to extrauterine life, 
but it's also applicable to neonates who have completed that transition and require resuscitation during the first weeks of life. And I will say, this is sort of this interesting challenge right now as babies may stay longer in the NICU. At what point do you transition to a PALS algorithm? And a lot of it depends on what's going on with the baby. Um, I'm focusing on NRP, but there was literally just an article published this week uh, in the Journal of Perinatology looking at what we are doing in PICUs, NICUs, and CICUs um, in terms of that gray zone. When do we make that transition from NRP to PALS? And I just throw that out there as something to think about. It's a nice uh, survey article. And I think the ter terminology can be really important. Newly born is specific to that infant that was just born. Um, but again, uh, neonates or uh, other newborns are sort of the terminology that we use through that initial hospitalization. And I will tell you, currently in our NICU, um, we do NRP throughout the course if a baby is uh, uh, having difficulty or needs resuscitation. And part of the challenge is you need to know what your team knows. So. Nurses in a neonatal nurse practitioner, a nurse in a NICU, may never have had PALS training. So for us to try to do a quick switch to PALS is that can actually be quite dangerous if myself or a resident are the only ones who really knows the, know those algorithms. So NRP is what we're talking about, but it's important to think about that broader context within CHAD and, and even when babies are rolling into the emergency room, what do you do with a one-week-old, a one-month-old, and beyond? So I'm not going to torture us by going through this, but I, because everybody probably started to twitch as I put up fetal circulation versus uh, circulation at birth. Um, I wanted to just, again, remind us that a lot happens immediately after birth. During fetal circulation, your blood is coming from the placenta, goes through the ductus venosus, has some mixing with the blood from the lower extremities. It then mixes with blood from the, from the um, superior vena cava. Some of it may go through the lungs uh, in the fetus, but then it circles back and then uh, gets reoxygenated in the placenta. I'm being very brief and simple. Um, at birth, you clamp that umbilical cord. The circulation now, your PFO needs to close, your PDA will begin to close. And really, one of the most important things is that now you need to get those lungs inflated. You need to recruit that crucial functional residual capacity. And so that is, a, um, I'm going to sort of pound that as we go through. Recruiting FRC is the most important part in helping these neonates transition or newly born babies. So I put this slide up. This is um, something because even in a baby who's crying, it takes time to really begin to recruit FRC. So this is from uh, a study of rabbit pups, not and they're preterm rabbit pups. And when you go across uh, Pictures A through D are a rabbit pup who's just crying and breathing on their own. Going along the bottom is actually a pup that's had some extra pressure and some extra help in recruiting FRC. And as you move from left to right, the first column, A and E, is at one second of life, and then five seconds of life, 10 seconds of life, and 20 seconds of life. And I just think it's a really nice visual highlight of that it takes a good 20 seconds in a, in a vigorous crying infant to begin to get even a portion of your FRC. Um, I do not right now advocate giving extra pressure to help a crying baby recruit this FRC. That's coming. Um, I, I think down the line there's ongoing studies right now and it's something that our European colleagues do more regularly, something called sustained inflation. But I think if you look at X-ray D versus X-ray H, 
there's still a pretty big difference in, in how much those lungs have been inflated and how that helps the baby move forward with their transition. So don't give extra pressure yet, just an interesting picture. And when you can see it in video, it's really quite impressive in how much more quickly you can, re can recruit. So why is resuscitation important? It's sort of the, the easy question um, in some ways. Approximately 10% of all newborns require some assistance to begin breathing. And that assistance may be the stimulation that we give them. It may be some breaths that we give them. Less than 1% require extensive resuscitation. And by extensive resuscitation, I mean giving cardiac compressions, intubation, medications. It's a small percentage when you say less than 1%, but when you think about the number of babies that are born each day, each month, each year, it actually becomes a much larger number. So these guidelines are extremely important, and being both competent and confident in your resuscitation skills is really a crucial thing to help support these patients. It's a low-frequency event requiring resuscitation, but high stakes and potentially life-saving. And I think the challenge, as um, uh, I have really come to appreciate in coming up here from, from having been in big academic centers where all of my referrals were coming from other NICUs and not from community hospitals, in our area and where we live, it's general pediatricians, family medicine docs, it may be an OB and a nurse while the pediatrician is driving in, who are completing these resuscitations. So in addition to wanting to make sure that we're doing great resuscitations here, both in uh, the BP and in the NICU, my hope is then to extend that to make sure we're doing and supporting our colleagues in our community hospitals so that they are doing great resuscitations and hopefully avoiding a transfer of a baby to us and away from uh, the community where that family lives. So, any resuscitation begins with asking and answering of three basic questions. And I want you to think of me every time you start it to the residents. I'm, the question there is yes or no, do I need to do this? Term gestation, that's easy. Good tone, breathing or crying. If the answer is yes to all three of these questions, you can proceed to routine newborn care, which at this point includes drying, going to skin to skin with mom if possible. This clearly can be more challenging in a C-section scenario, although I will tell you it definitely is evolving. Um, and I think there's big pushes to try to get skin moms, baby skin to skin with moms in operating rooms. It obviously depends on the illness of the mom and the illness of the baby, whether that can potentially happen. And then covering with dry linen, blanket, or towel to maintain a normal temperature. One thing that I think is really, really important is that you have to continue to observe breathing, activity, and color, especially when babies are skin to skin. I think everybody breathes a big sigh of relief when the baby comes out. You say, up, oh, no resuscitation needed, and then they're skin to skin with mom. And I think we've all had the situations uh, where suddenly a baby does not look like that great skin to skin with mom. And so making sure that that ongoing assessment, uh, I think, is really quite important. If the answer is no, if the baby is not term, if they're not breathing, if they're having issues, you need to move the infant to a radiant warmer if possible, and then initiate resuscitation following the NRP guideline. So this is the most updated NRP guideline, and I apologize if it's not super clear. Unfortunately, there's not, um, uh, I, don't have, I didn't have the perfect picture, so I apologize for this. 
As I mentioned, it's reviewed and edited by the NRP committee every five years. We're fortunate enough, Steve is the head of the NRP committee. So if I can't answer a question, I get to ask Steve, and he hopefully has, can give us the inside scoop. <laughs> he says, no, I'm on my own on this presentation. Um, so the golden minute is something you may or may not have heard of, but it's sort of that approximately 60 seconds. It does not have to be exactly that time. Um, that's allotted for completing those initial steps of NRP. Warming and maintaining a normal temperature, positioning the baby, that sniffing position, making sure you have a, a sort of a clear airway opening. Clearing secretions only if copious. And when I learned NRP in 2008, my first round as an intern, we were still in the zone of you suction, suction, suction. I'm sure there's many of you that learned NRP. The 2010 guidelines pulled that off. It was only meant to do suctioning if the baby had copious secretions pouring out of them or clearly were having challenges breathing. And in some institutions, I know in my fellowship, they didn't even want us to put out a bulb suction because the, the instinct was so quickly to do that. Um, part of the challenge with that, and, and I'll speak more to it, is that you can induce bradycardia with all of your aggressive and well-intentioned suctioning. Uh, and then drying and stimulating. Uh, I think what's really important is that 60 seconds isn't a mark that's defined by science specifically, but it's really important to have that number in your head to be watching the APGAR timer as you're moving forward because if you delay initiation of ventilation, this can really have longer-term impacts on the baby during that resuscitation. Breathing for the baby is one of the most important things if that baby is non-vigorous to help recruit the FRC as I demonstrated hopefully in those x-rays earlier and to help that transition move along without needing to move further along within the algorithm. So 60 seconds is as quickly as you want to be hitting that point where you're making the decision of does this baby need some extra help. That decision to move beyond the initial steps is the simultaneous assessment of two really vital characteristics, respirations and heart rate. Another thing that has sort of moved past or, or gone by the wayside is color. Again, I think when I, when I initially learned that NRP, you also assess, well, what's the baby's color? Within those first 60 seconds, though, and we know that by the oxygen saturation goals that we follow, the baby's actual oxygenation, oxygen saturation may only be in the high 50s, low 60s, they're not going to have good color, but that's okay. It's, that's within that normal range. So heart rate and respirations is what you should be assessing. If you then move on to initiate PPV or oxygen su supplementation, you need to continue to assess those respirations, heart rate, and then moving on with your oxygen saturations, you should be placing a pulse oximeter. And again, the most sensitive indicator of a successful response to your intervention is an increase in your heart rate. That is the thing that you really want to be monitoring. There's, two, there's multiple ways to assess that heart rate. Uh, some people are quite comfortable with grabbing at the base of the umbilical cord, really feeling like they can feel that heart rate. You can attempt to auscultate a heart rate, but both of those are not perfect. And uh, there have been challenges in either believing your heart rate is lower than it is when you're actually well over above 100 and you sort of move down a more aggressive resuscitation. There's also been challenges where you think you've got a heart rate above 60 or above 100 when really it's much lower. You may be feeling your own pulse, to be honest, as your heart is racing during the resuscitation. Um, and so, so having someone who is competent and confident in their assessment of heart rate 
is actually also quite important within this NRP. And as I'll talk again, I think the committee and um, has moved forward in trying to really push that heart rate, heart rate, heart rate, and having a good assessment of that as well. But again, if a baby is not breathing at a minute, please give that baby breaths. People are very nervous, and I've learned this in my project, which I'll talk about at the end. People are nervous about putting a mask on a baby and giving those breaths, either with a flow inflating bag or a T-piece resuscitator, but that is the thing that is going to help the baby. So just do it. <laughs> um, you're gonna see this slide a lot. Um, I did very briefly sort of want to highlight a couple of the things that have changed within the algorithm uh, that are quite important in terms of if you're moving forward with a resuscitation. If you give positive pressure ventilation, you don't have improvement in the breathing and or heart rate. Uh, the next step and sort of has been a step is considering intubation um, after corrective steps. But the other thing that is, I think, a really powerful tool that is underappreciated and underused is the use of an LMA, of a, laryngular, a laryngeal mask. Um, it is easy to place, and you can get much better effective uh, positive pressure ventilation, particularly on a baby that has significant molding, you're having a hard time getting a seal with your mask, getting that LMA in place. And if it goes in and you don't get effective chest rise, you just pull it out and try again. There's no sort of risk of hurting that baby, um, I think, which is what some people get nervous about if, with intubations, if there's not a skilled intubator immediately present. And it's something that we're really pushing with our referring hospitals as well, making sure that they have LMAs stocked and that people are comfortable with placing them. I will say they are not small enough for our smallest babies, and that is a challenge, and we completely recognize that. But in those bigger kids, in that 33, 34 weeker where they're coming to us, they need a little extra help, but they're not getting effective PPV, and LMA is a really nice tool to, to potentially use. The, uh, and I would say, the, again, the way I internalized it initially when I in learned NRP and even in the last iteration, they mentioned the LMA, but it was almost as an afterthought. Oh, yeah, there's this thing called an LMA that you could try to use. It is on the algorithm for the first time, and in the NRP guy, or, uh, course in education, it's, I think, pushed much more strongly as an option for an alternative airway. The other reason this is important is because there really is a strong statement from the NRP committee <laughs> that if you feel like you need to move forward with chest compressions, if your heart rate is less than 60 and you're not getting response with PPV, you need to obtain an alternative airway prior to starting those chest compressions. And it's hard when we've been drilled to, to just oh, start compressions while I'm doing PPV, no problem. Um, but really in babies, it's airway, 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 and then maybe it's a cardiac issue. So if you can get an effective airway established, you most likely are going to be able to avoid those compressions. Um, so another thing to have in your mind, you're gonna hear us prompting ourselves as well as our trainees to make sure that if we think we need compressions, let's assess that airway and get a, a stable airway first. And then the other thing I mentioned, the heart rate and having the challenge of, of determining what exactly is your heart rate, especially as you're moving forward down the algorithm. Do I need to give epinephrine in, through uh, a low-line UVC? Or, and the 
new, a new recommendation that I think is important is having the ability to use ECG monitoring to confirm that heart rate. And that's a big change in places. In our Panda room, we've got monitors we can confirm our ECG. That's, that's easier for the neonatologist. But I've had conversations with other neonatologists who may do their resuscitations in the delivery rooms. They don't have the, the luxury of a Panda room as we do, or in the operating rooms if it's a C-section. They don't necessarily have that baby monitor right there available. So it is a change in practice that people have to figure out the logistics of how do I get that um, moving. And it really is to, to hopefully support the baby appropriately to make sure that we're sort of addressing a heart rate that's a true heart rate. Um, and I think that that's another thing that we'll, we'll be pushing. And as you go for our residents, as you go out into the world and you're potentially doing these resuscitations, that's a major question to have. Where's our ECG monitor? How do I get it during a resuscitation? Do I or my nurses know how to put those leads on? And I think what I would recommend is you make sure you know how to put those leads on. So if you're the only person there comfortable doing it, you can get it done and know that that heart rate is what it is. Again, though. Just breathe for the baby, and you're probably going to fix them. It's airway, 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 airway. So I also think it's really important, and again, NRP continues to stress it, and this ties into the simulation component. Um, teamwork and communication is probably one of the most effective parts of a successful resuscitation, that your team knows their roles, they're comfortable with those roles, they're able to ask questions about those roles, and that you have strong closed-loop communication. Um, it's really essential to any resuscitation and definitely to NRP. So as you're anticipating resuscitation need, you're assessing the perinatal risk, you're at a community hospital or you're here in the NICU and we know there's a baby about to deliver, making sure that you've got the appropriate personnel and, and equipment based on that risk, using standardized behavioral skills to assure effective teamwork and communication. In the new round of NRP, the way that these simulations are meant to be done after you do online training is that it's meant to be a true team complement and the NRP is done in the location where you resuscitate. So it's not really effective for um, a referring hospital to bring their team to us to do resuscitations in the sim or do an NRP course in our simulation center. I would much rather go to them and do help them facilitate the NRP course in their environment because you need to know your own equipment, your own team, and your own resources. Um, the other thing that's really important is that having at least one person as part of that team who can perform the initial NRP steps as well as positive pressure ventilation. Um, and whose only responsibility is the care of the newborn. So whether that's a nurse, whether that's a resident, whether that's a pediatrician, you want someone who is able to be focused on the newborn during that resuscitation. But again, teamwork, having a conversation, having a huddle before a resuscitation is, is really powerful, and it can be equally as powerful at a a referring hospital versus here, um, even a routine C-section, having a huddle with the BP mm. nurse who's with you in there saying, I'm going to do this and you're going to do that, being very clear and effective with that communication is vitally important to a successful resuscitation. 
So I'm going to talk about two other changes, um, just because one, umbilical cord management, this is a big change for everybody who learned NRP previously, and I want our pediatricians to know what's going on uh, at these deliveries. And then the second one, we're going to talk about meconium and what we're doing with them. Um, if, you, if anybody has additional questions about the updated guidelines, there's a lot more uh, sort of nuances and details. I'm happy to speak with you after. So the old style umbilical cord management. Uh, you clamp the cord as quickly as possible, you get the baby to mom or you get the baby to the warmer. Um, and really our OBs were doing it at the perineum, at the uh, incision site in a C-section, moving quickly. And it was felt that this was especially important for infants that were high risk and most likely to require resuscitation. The theory was get that baby to the warmer, let the baby doctors deal with them. <laughs> In, in 2010, as they did their evidence and data review, uh, the committee began to see evidence suggesting that delayed cord clamping may be beneficial, and, but at that time, there was no specific recommendation made. This iteration in 2015, and ILCOR is again one of these international groups who oversee our resuscitation guidelines and practices, not just in the neonates, but in adults, children. Uh, they did a systematic review of the evidence of delayed cord clamping, as more had come out since that previous 2010 review. And so the PICO question uh, was, does in, does in preterm infants, does delayed cord clamping greater than 30 seconds compared with immediate cord clamping change survival, long-term developmental outcomes, intraventricular hemorrhage, cardiovascular stability, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, temperature on admission, and hyperbilirubinemia. Uh, and, in, and I should say, delayed cord clamping for everybody to understand. The baby is successfully delivered. The OBs then, if it's a vaginal delivery, will hold that baby for a period of, and here, uh, you know, it, or it can range from anywhere from 30 to 120 seconds, depending on the institution. I will say that. And, uh, and you try to have the baby between the mother's thighs or lower. Um, it's also done in C-sections, although technically from a position perspective, you're not really going to be able to get that baby down to the point where might, what might be optimal or what was used in some of these studies. It's also really important, and, and this is the challenge that we face with some of our tiniest babies that are born, in theory for this to work effectively, the baby also needs to have some breathing and respiratory effort um, from a physiologic perspective. There is also something called cord milking, and this is literally like milking a cow. You sort of have the cord and you're milking along the blood from the placenta, in theory, down into the baby. This is not currently a recommendation, and the biggest concern at this point is that are you getting a bolus of fluid into the baby, and in our extremely preterm infants especially, sort of having that quick, fast fluid bolus could potentially have some adverse outcomes. But you may hear people talk about cord milking. That's not what I'm talking about. Delayed cord clamping is just holding the baby, allowing the blood pass, or not passively, but to flow from mom into the baby. Um, and it's not cord stripping. When people sometimes think about cord milking, there was sort of a thought of like, you start at the top of the cord and just you don't want to do that either, and that probably will never uh, come out as a, as a safe thing to do in our preterm infants especially. So the challenge with this is that there was few overall studies, as with many systematic reviews, um, and study numbers uh, ranged for each of these questions, each of these outcome questions. There was 
no studies that address them specifically or a maximum of 11 studies that address them specifically with a, at most 500 patients. So I, I present the data and, and Steve can correct me, it is not necessarily the strongest data but it is what we have and I think there are some compelling reasons to do delayed cord clamping. So the results of the systematic review confirm that delayed cord clamping is associated with decreased IVH, higher blood pressures and blood volumes, less need for transfusion after birth, and less necrotizing enterocolitis. And I think anecdotally, uh, we had not transitioned to delayed cord clamping in fellowship. And I will tell you, in practice, I transfused extremely low birth weight infants much more frequently and earlier uh, in my fellowship than I do here with babies that have had delayed cord clamping. And at times when we have not been able to do delayed cord clamping for a variety of reasons, I think we also sort of clinically see a difference in how we're managing them, particularly from an anemia perspective. Um, so, and again, that's just one person's experience, but I think that echoes uh, the experience of many other neonatology practitioners. There is no evidence for decreased mortality or decreased incidence of severe IVH. Um, and studies were judged to be very low quality for both imprecision and high risk of bias. But that is unfortunately the nature of many studies in neonatology. We don't necessarily have big numbers or a large number of studies. So often recommendations are made um, that are potentially uh, helpful without the data that we necessarily want behind them. The only negative consequence was a slightly increased level of bilirubin with, that was associated uh, for potentially more earlier and more phototherapy, but that's a relatively benign sort of consequence for, I think, a lot of benefit in a lot of other ways. A major challenge of these studies, and, and here's the challenge right in research, um, in all of them really, if an infant was thought to re need resuscitation they were either withdrawn from the study or they were excluded from randomization. So all of these studies, the bulk of these studies, were based on infants who didn't seem to need much resuscitation. Uh, that being said, we have no evidence regarding the safety or utility of delayed cord clamping in infants requiring resuscitation, yet we're making the decision to do delayed cord clamping on infants that we know will need resuscitation. A 25-weeker is going to need some level of resuscitation, but the benefit for them of delayed cord clamping is also sort of outweighs that unknown. Um, there are, and I would say this, this story is continuing, uh, there is at least one study that is rolling out or, or has rolled out um, looking at initiating resuscitation prior to uh, clamping the cord at the perineum or at the bedside of a C-section. Um, you can imagine the logistics of such a study is quite challenging, making sure people are appropriately sterile and is there even enough space to do this? Um, but I do think it's, it's sort of the move of the future and, and I don't know that we'll have that data for the next iteration of NRP, but I think that is also something that is coming down the, the road for us. So the current, the current recommendations, and this is what babies will be seeing, is that delayed cord clamping for greater than 30 seconds is reasonable for both term and preterm infants who do not require resuscitation at birth. There's insufficient evidence for infants requiring resuscitation. And then again, for the use of cord milking in infants less than 29 weeks is not recommended currently due to safety concerns because of those rapid changes in blood volume. So babies born here at 
in Lebanon are receiving delayed cord clamping. And for us in the ICN, I should also say, if you have an X25 weaker who now is in your practice, we, are, we a, a neonatology provider, is in the delivery room and we are asked to sort of make the judgment should the baby get delayed cord clamping or not. Um, and, you know, it's always a little tricky because there's plenty of 23, 24, 25, 26 weekers who come out without an extensive amount of, of respiratory effort, without a lot of vigorousness. But we know that those are potentially the babies who are going to get the biggest impact from that delayed cord clamping. So we've spoken with our OB colleagues about, you know, they can start a little bit of that stimulation at the at the perineum, at the C-section site to help those babies take that first breath. And I would say our default is really to err on the side of having that delayed cord clamping happening. Um, and I would say in practice, I think we're doing, again, less transfusions um, overall and earlier. I don't have data or number, but my, my gestalt of it is, is that this has been a successful intervention. So clearing the airway. Uh, with clear amniotic fluid, as I talked about earlier, um, suctioning with a bulb syringe or a suction catheter only if the airway appears obstructive or if you feel like you need to initiate positive pressure ventilation, because the need for positive pressure ventilation may just be that you've got a bunch of amniotic fluid at the, at the back of the throat, and you've got to get that out, and then you can move forward, or the baby will start breathing on their own. Um, again, avoiding unnecessary suctioning. A baby who's crying isn't perfect, but is making their way there. Allow them to cry it out. They will often clear that fluid on their own, um, and in practice, as we allow them to do that, we can see that fluid come out the mouth, and then that might be the time that we start to clear it. When meconium is present, so the historical perspective, uh, pre my time, um, was that universal oropharyngeal suctioning at the perineum. A baby has meconium, the OBs are there, suction, 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 suction. This is long ago. Um, routine intubation and suctioning of the trachea at birth. Of, I didn't mean that. Oh, God, they're all. Oh, Lord. Busted. <laughs> totally busted. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> My apologies. You don't want me to tell you what year I was born. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, but I also think that it that it's it, there was also the routine intubation and suctioning of the trachea at birth of any baby who is meconium stained, not the non-vigorous baby. So I learned on the non-vigorous baby. That was the time. My timing of NRP education. And, you know, I laugh because my fellowship program director always used to preach to us in fellowship. By the time I finished residency, I had 400 intubations. And we'd, like, look at him like he was crazy because we're, how could you have had 400 intubations? There's just, <laughs> Kathy Shukin had the same. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, I think that for, this is important as, we, as we're shifting to our, our discussion of procedures and medical education, it's important for people who learned in this era and you had 400 intubation attempts, they just don't exist anymore. And so we have to shift how we're teaching our trainees and getting them competent and confident in this skill. Um, and then, you know, and then he would say, forget about fellowship, the number of intubations I had in fellowship. You know, I did not have 400 intubations in fellowship. And in a busy tertiary quaternary care center, that opportunity doesn't exist. The residents there didn't have 400 intubations. So there, in 2004 in The Lancet, there was a large multicenter randomized controlled trial that uh, 
assess this. And, and essentially, and I'm not going to go through the whole uh, algorithm of how they randomize patients, but what was found was that there was no benefit to intubating a vigorous baby, and there was the continued risk of intubation. So sticking a tube into your trachea or into your esophagus is not entirely benign, as much as we might wish it was um, to, to allow us to practice. But I think that's very important. Um, and this just, again, was highlighting that there, there was no benefit. So I think what continues to be very important when meconium is present, the resuscitation team must include an individual skilled in tracheal intubation, and that team should be present at birth. With a vigorous baby, they can go through routine care, stay with mom, go skin to skin. I would argue these are those babies, though, that you should keep even a closer watch on while they're skin to skin with their mother. They tend to be babies. You know they're at high risk for potentially becoming depressed. And while they may not de be depressed on that initial scream, we've all in the neonatology and well baby world see those, seen those babies that at five or ten minutes of life, suddenly they're not looking so great. So don't just kind of hand them to mom and say, I'm out and walk away. Um, they, they do continue to need resuscitation. For those babies with poor tone and inadequate breathing, begin the initial steps of resuscitation. Um, and, and this is that you just go into the NRP algorithm. You no longer automatically intubate those babies and suction for meconium. And we have instituted this as of last month. And so this is the practice of what is happening with meconium babies in our units. This will happen everywhere by the first of the year. That's sort of the deadline for rolling out these new NRP guidelines to hospitals around the country. So this is a vital change, both in the babies that you may receive into your practice, but also a really important change for our, uh, for our residents and our fellow trainees. And I think many of us watched as the, as the frequency of intubation opportunities have gone down, if you're intubating that baby for meconium just because they meet the, that criteria of not being vigorous, there is lots of struggling, and it's an airway that's, or a mouth and airway that's potentially full of dark fluid. You can't see the airway. And I can't tell you the number of times as a fellow that I would stand watching the APGAR clock, and we'd be hitting 45 seconds, 60 seconds, and we had done nothing other than stick laryngoscope in the baby's mouth and try to get a tube in there. And that delay in ventilation is crucial. So in reviewing the evidence this time around, what was found was the bigger issue was the delay in ventilation, not suctioning that meconium out. I should also say that if you're not getting a great response out of your uh, uh, out of your positive pressure ventilation, it doesn't mean that you can't use the meconium aspirator at that time or place an ET tube and suction through that. It's not that we're throwing away the idea of suctioning for meconium. It's just that it's not the first step because doing that initial resuscitation methods may really solve your problem. And you've avoided an intubation on a baby, which is always avoiding a potential adverse outcome and hopefully avoided an admission to the NICU. So again, Breathe for the baby. Do it. So the non-vigorous infant, as I just said, is no longer suggested. Emphasis on initiating ventilation in that golden minute is the most important thing. And it's a greater value on harm avoidance, delaying effective positive pressure ventilation, as well as that potential harm of intubation. Um, and again, you can use your meconium aspirator, both in the setting of meconium also in a setting of a baby that you're not getting any chest rise, you're not getting a change in heart rate, maybe there's some 
sort of glob of something. They always laugh at me in the NICU because I say there's some Goomba on the airway that you've got to get out. But you can do that with an ET tube and a meconium aspirator or an ET tube and a suction catheter down it. Um, and I think remembering that that is still a great uh, resource for you, particularly if you're that pediatrician, Heather Jones, far away from your, refer your, your tertiary care center, these are tricks of the trade that are really important when you're potentially resuscitating on your own with, without help coming quickly. So we took away intubations for meconium, and all of a sudden, I think everyone has freaked out. How am I going to learn how to intubate? How are we going to train our trainees? The next round of, of general pediatricians resuscitating in the field. And so what I'd like to spend the next sort of uh, 10 minutes talking about, and I'll, I'll move a little more quickly, um, is how we're hoping to accomplish that for our residents here. So thinking about procedural education. Um, you know, intubation training has, ch training has changed a lot, and part of that is medical advances. We have antenatal steroids, we have surfactant, we use volume ventilation. We're better at doing what we're doing with many of these tiny babies or sicker babies from sort of the neonatology perspective, and we can avoid ventilation. I'll tell you, we have a lot of 25 and 26-weekers who just get intubated for surfactant. We pull that tube, and they remain on non-invasive ventilation, which would have been unheard of 10 to 15 years ago. So that change alone, we're not just intubating. We're better at securing ET tubes. Tubes aren't coming out and going in left and right, which, while great for the baby, I think people then say, but I'm not getting the opportunity to intubate. Um, Duty hours and education tracks have shifted how time is allocated during residency. There's potentially a lot less time spent on neonatology rotations. Um, interns aren't doing 24-hour calls. It's less time in the NICU again. And this changes your opportunities. And so the overall result is less intubations of real babies by residents. We know it's happening. And it's happening in fellowships as well. It's a different, and, and I will tell you, in the, at the fellowship level, the discussion is how do we need to change what we do initially in our education in those first-year fellows because we know that their experience in residency is very different than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So this is a pervasive, not problem, it's just an issue to be addressed. So I, I'm going to quickly move through this article. This was published in 2012, post-intern duty hour changes. So the 24-hour uh, shifts were taken away. And, and I, I thought it was sort of aptly named the, the lost art of intubation. And it was assessing the opportunities for residents to, to perform those neonatal intubations. This was done at University Hospital in Cincinnati, which is a tertiary care delivery center. Lots of uh, interns there, and they also deliver the really high-risk babies that then potentially would go to Cincinnati Children's. Um, and I think out of uh, 785 babies, the residents got 25% of those intubation attempts. There's lots of learners in NICUs. There's lots of people who need the opportunity to practice and maintain those intubation skills, including attendings. Even though we've done many and potentially hard ones, we don't want to get rusty because we're the sort of the, the last resort. Um, but fellows, respiratory therapists, we have respiratory therapists that go on our transport teams here and in many other institutions, as well as our associate providers, because they may be the people in in the middle of the night who are making those first attempts. So again, 
just highlighting, and, and what this shows is that residents, not surprisingly, were getting less attempts at intubation. And so um, this was the documentation of it. It was a retrospective review over three years, looking at all of the intubations in their unit, who did them, and the success rate of them. Uh, and there's multiple, I should say, there's other articles in the medical education literature and the simulation literature that supports this. I, I just highlight one um, to, to show you briefly. So where are intubation learning opportunities? Clearly there's intubations in the PANDA room and the ICN, and we're trying to be really thoughtful here about prioritizing and, and making sure that the right people are getting the opportunities for those intubations. But I will promise you there will never be enough intubations for everybody, and, and as much as or as, as many as people want. Again, I was just at the fellowship director meeting for neonatology, and this was one of the biggest challenges across the country at all different size NICUs, fellowship programs, etc. Everybody is struggling with what do we do and how do we make sure that we are trained. So we are not alone in this, and it is something that we're going to deal with and deal with it well. Um, instruction and placement of laryngeal mask airways. I actually think this is really important. Um, our residents should be able to graduate, and they've heard me say this in simulation a lot. My biggest thing is, can you do effective positive pressure ventilation? Can you place an LMA? And can you place a low-lying UVC? If you have those three skills, you probably are going to be able to deal with just about every resuscitation need. Obviously, there will be those rare ones that need more, um, but I think those three skills, you're going to be able to take care of 90 to 95% of those babies that you need to deal with. Video laryngoscopy is something that um, where I'm going to push hard to, to get into our unit, and I already told Steve we need it. Uh, this was a, a major thing that uh, NICUs across the country are using, and I'm going to show you a picture of what I'm talking about, where the intubator gets to still do direct laryngoscopy. It is not the glide scope that some people may have seen where you're trying to play a video game. I have no skill in that. The, the ability of me to try to intubate this way, looking to the side, virtually impossible. So the intubator does direct laryngoscopy, but then all of your learners, as well as the supervising person, can watch on a video screen and coach much more effectively. All the times that I wish I could like mm -hmm. see over somebody's shoulder and see that airway, it's really challenging and using the right words. Because we say things like, pull up, pull back, uh, you know, do you need cricoid, do you not? And, and a learner may not know what they need. I, though, can hopefully help them because I have a visual. And then simulations are really important and really powerful. And yes, they are not the same as intubating on a real baby. But I will tell you, the more you practice, particularly on our new friend, Preemie Annie, who I'm also about to show you, the better you will get. And I can tell, I think Sydney had to leave. But Sydney, um, her last rotation, oh, is she there? Her last rotation in the NICU, we practiced on Preemie Annie the week before. And then she had the opportunity to do an intubation. And she, first attempt, success. And I think she commented on it. You can... Hopefully I'm not lying for her, that it made a big difference. Being able to see an anterior airway, which is really the challenge in neonatology, this mannequin has an anterior airway that is really successful. So here's the video laryngoscope. It's something called the CMAC. Um, the one major issue with it is that it is not small enough for our tiniest babies. And we just have to say we can't use it under 28 weeks or whatever the, the size is. But without a doubt, this is one of the biggest learning tools in how we're advancing teaching intubation and something we're going to use regularly. This is Preemie Annie. We have one in our uh, simulation center, and she is amazing. We have used it a lot both here and, and helping teach 
sort of these skills for our referring hospitals. Um, we're also getting one uh, thanks to the volunteer services that will live in the NICU. And so the expectation for our residents will be that you are pulling her out every day to practice putting a breathing tube in her. And I promise you, this will make you a better intubator and, and more confident and competent in it. So what are we going to do for our residents? And I'm, I'm, I think the residents have heard about this. I'm taking over uh, sort of monitoring our procedural curriculum. And we're going to do a little bit of a pilot project this spring. And so it's going to take some help from our residents because we're trying to optimize the procedural experience, um, have really good documentation so we know exactly who's doing what on what rotations, and then regularly schedule simulation opportunities to bridge those procedural gaps. Um, and also have continual reassessment of the challenges with procedures. Assessing it once a year probably isn't enough, so at least twice a year to have a sense and to look at that resident's schedule and say, wow, they were on elective the whole time, they did a bunch of LPs in Hemonk, and otherwise they didn't really get to do much. What sessions should they be sort of attending and practicing with? The residents, this is the big thing, and I'm making my push. We're going to have you guys document your procedures in MedHub, and you need to be really accurate about it. The next six months, starting in January, are going to be our data collection point, so we can get a better sense of what we're doing and where we're doing them. This can include unsuccessful procedures. I just want to know, did you have the opportunity to try? Um, and then we're going to talk about having procedure-focused rotation. So in the ICN, making sure, obviously, resuscitation. Is intubation the place that we're really going to try to make sure residents get that procedure? Placing an LMA and knowing how to prep and place a UVC. My opinion is both with an LP and a UVC, it's the prep that's the hardest part to get used to. And once you're confident in that, there's unfortunately a certain amount of luck, whether you get CSF back, whether, you know, your UVC doesn't get stopped in the liver, you can't control that per se, but you can per control being well prepared and knowing how to perform the procedure. Places like the PICU and the ward, and there's lots of question marks because none of this has been teased out. We need data and knowing where things are happening. LPs, venipunctures, IVs, in well baby, having a circumcision experience and, and making sure that you're documenting what you're doing and what you're learning. In the ED, suturing LPs. Um, you know, there's the opportunity, I mentioned the UVC, there's LP mannequins that we could sort of have live in a rotation. And the expectation is once a week, you should do a full setup of an LP as long as you're not interfering with patient care. That would be my expectation of UVCs in the ICN rotation. Once a week, you're pulling out the practice, you're going through the full setup, you're placing that UVC. I know it's different on the mannequin, but it's still important to go through the process. So I'm going to quickly finish, even though simulation is what I love. Um, so simulation-based research, what I would advocate for and really argue for is let's think of projects that are monitoring and, and watching how we're teaching our procedures, how we're teaching other things within medical education. There's great opportunity to produce simulation-based research, to have it published, to have it presented at national meetings. And the resources and mentorship that exists in simulation are great. It's a relatively new field, and people across the country want to help you. I just want to give a brief way to think about it. You can think about simulation as a training methodology versus an investigative methodology. So a procedure, you might say, are, is this an effective way to train? Can we then look at the outcomes moving forward for a resident once they've gone through a certain training, their success rate with intubation, their success rate with UVC placement? Can we do timing? 
versus an investigative methodology. Is simulation a way to assess something, a way to teach something in it and, and sort of think of it more cerebrally? My project actually looked at could I use simulation to teach prioritization, clinical reasoning, clinical decision making. Really challenging to try to figure out, but it was something that um, I think was a, uh, an excellent exercise in sort of an untapped domain of simulation. And, and if people want some of these rep references, I can show them. The outcome measures, as with everything, are really challenging. And I think there's good evidence that simulation is a great teaching tool, yes. But can it change patient outcomes? And that's the hardest thing to measure, to be honest, and what I'm trying to do with my project on the birthing pavilion. Um, but I think that it can be a quality improvement project with simulation. It can be procedure-related. We can look at survival. Um, as long as it's something that's measurable and I think important to the learner and the patient. Uh, these are opportunities that we have and I'm happy, happy, happy to help you with them. So I knew I would be run out of time, so I literally have just one slide on my, my project. As Keith mentioned, I was fortunate enough to be awarded the Aligning Simula ed Simulation Education with Quality Scholarship last year, which was a year of support to do a research project utilizing simulation. Um, and mine's called the First Minute Project. I could have called it the Golden Minute Project because remember, what do I want everybody to be able to do? Give PPV in the first minute. Just do it. Um, so my aim was actually to improve the unanticipated resuscitation prior to arrival of the ICN team in the birthing pavilion. So we call them doorbells here. A baby comes out, everybody thinks everything's going to be fine, and all of a sudden there's not a fine baby. The baby's not breathing, is limp and floppy. The nurses hit the buzzer that calls us to the, to the, from the ICN, hence the doorbell, and we come running down. And what I found, and, what, and I think through observation, was that there's great variability. Um, and one of them is people really want to give CPAP. They're afraid to give positive pressure ventilation. But the problem is, if you're only giving CPAP of five and a baby's not breathing, nothing's going to happen fast. You have to give those breaths to help recruit that functional residual capacity. Remember back to my, my earlier slide of those x-rays. Those studies that are coming out are looking at giving pressures of 20 to 25. So clearly, it's a much bigger pressure. Don't do that. Don't give pressures of 20 to 25. But I think the perspective. Um, so what I, did, what I designed was really individual simulations. I get one of the birthing pavilion nurses, they come in, we run through resuscitation of a baby who's not breathing with a low heart rate. And really the, it, the sim lasts three to five minutes depending on sort of what they do and what they choose to do. They're videotaped. And then I also have a data collection tool that just sort of looks at what's their experience. You could be a nurse on a birthing pavilion, go a year without doing any sort of advanced resuscitation, including having to give breaths. Um, and then they get individualized debriefings where we really get to talk through the algorithm and talk through the skill set. Being able to get an effective seal, giving effective positive pressure ventilation with good chest rise is vitally important. So I did the first round. I'm going to do a second round of data collection now that those nurses have had the opportunity to have some education. And then my hope long term is actually that there's a way for, for, there, for there to be sort of just-in-time training or regular training where if I'm on a night shift and it's nice and quiet, I can pull my friend in with me and there's a little resuscitation corner. And 
There's low fidelity mannequins that they already have on the birthing pavilion. And you just run through. Do we know what the setup is of our warmer bed? Do we know how to give effective positive pressure ventilation? Do we know that we should be giving breaths and not CPAP? And it's interesting. Uh, and, and that's a challenge everywhere. It's not busting on anybody by any means, but I think people are nervous about blowing a pneumothorax. My response to that is, I don't care if you blow the pneumothorax, I'll deal with it. I just want you to breathe for the baby. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, my hope is it will then also be something that we can take to our referring hospitals and have it be something that really models what effective NRP and, and that especially that first minute of resuscitation. Because guess what? Taking a course every two years, if you have no practice in between, is really ineffective. Um, and so doing more regular practice, whether it's quarterly or monthly or, you know, somebody could practice every week if they wanted to, uh, I think is really powerful. So... Again, just breathe for the baby. And then I'm almost done. I'm sorry. This is the last thing that I would just want to, if you are interested in simulation, because I promised Jean I would do this, we've got great, great resources in our patient safety training center down, downstairs, including simulation instructor courses. So if you are interested in simulation and doing it, whether it's in your clinic, in the outpatient world, I mean, we can design anything. Taking an instructor course is the best way to start because there's a lot of principles to simulation that I didn't go through here today that are important to know when you're designing a simulation. So there's two more courses that are still open sort of in this academic year in May and September. And if you're interested in them, you can get in touch with me. And, and if you're interested in simulation at all, there's also lots of stuff online. <coughs> so many thanks. Sorry for going late.